This is the 966 Richard episode 33. Well done, sir. Mumtaz. Ah, shukran. This is 33. We're just setting them up and knocking them down. (laughs) This week on the 966, we'll have another really awesome show today. We'll be talking about a new resort at Neom, the Saudi labor market, investment, and more. And also, after speaking with Bilal Saab last week, who talked about the military transformation ongoing in Saudi Arabia, We'll have the former head of the U.S. military training mission from 2019 to 2021, Colonel Brad Gandy, to react to that discussion and talk more about the U.S.-Saudi defense relationship. Just incredible. Before we get started, Richard, we want to start off the program this week by wishing all of our viewers and listeners a blessed Ramadan, which starts on Friday. For all followers of Islam, Ramadan creamed everyone out there. Let's get going. Uh, What's your one big thing this week? One big thing. Today... March 31st, marks the end of the six-month-long Expo 2020 hosted by Dubai. This expo recorded over 22 million visits, featured 102 country pavilions and presented 32,000 events and attractions. The Saudi pavilion was a leading attraction with 4.6 million visitors and won several design awards, including being given a platinum certificate by the U.S. Green Building Council in part due to its 650 solar panels, all manufactured in Saudi Arabia. It also, and this is always important, it also won three Guinness World Records. for long, One for longest interactive water curtain, 32 meters. One for the largest interactive light floor and the largest interactive digital screen mirror, um, 1,240 square meters. You saw, I mean, that's a pretty cool building, the it's, way it was cantilevered out and yeah, all sides so of the screens. Cool. Yeah. yeah. All in all, a very successful showcase for Dubai and, and a well-received entry for Saudi Arabia. As we have covered previously, while this Expo 2020 was going on, Saudi Arabia submitted a bid to host the Expo 2030 in Riyadh. Uh, now that the current Expo is completed, the campaign to host the Expo 2030 has begun in earnest. Uh, this is because the Paris-based Bureau des Expositions, which decides these things, is expected to announce the winner in November 2023, so you know, typically seven years in advance. So basically just about a year and a half from now. Uh, leading the charge for Saudi Arabia is the Royal Commission for uh, Riyadh City, the RCRC. Uh, Fahad al-Rashid, CEO of the RCRC, said, millions of people, quote, millions of people who visited the award-winning Saudi pavilion got a glimpse of the future that the kingdom and its capital are building. Riyadh is building one of the world's largest public transport networks, one of the largest urban parks, a massive urban greening project, and turning the entire city into open art gallery without walls. Um, I thought it was interesting, since Saudi Arabia applied just last October, the field has changed so much, because as you may recall, the five cities to apply for the uh, Expo 2030 are Riyadh, Rome, Busan, South Korea, and Moscow and Odessa, Ukraine. So uh, my guess, so just speculating here, given the decision is going to have to be made by the end of 2023, it's difficult to imagine either Moscow or Odessa will be viable picks. You know, Moscow politically, Odessa, oh my goodness. <clears throat> um, so that's sort of a third rail now if they, you know, for the BIE if they want to go in that direction. So Italy actually hosted the Expo 2015, so just, you know, not too long ago. The, the, the one, the iteration prior to this Dubai one in Milan, so perhaps that recency will work against Rome bid. So my uneducated and un, inexpert guess is that it comes down to South Korea and Saudi Arabia, and we'll know in a little over a year. 
I'm guessing South Korea will be very strong. But when I when when I first mentioned this, I thought Saudi Arabia was a long shot. They were a late applicant. You had some other good things, good good cities. But now, um, like I say, South Korea or Saudi Arabia, that's my tout. I mean, if, if you're a betting person, you know, that's my advice. I think it would be really, really awesome if they got it. They're also looking at possibly submitting a bid for the World Cup in the same year. Is that right? They were going to co-host it with Egypt, yeah. Okay, cool. So they got some balls up in the air. I mean, that, but but 2030 is obviously would be a huge year for Saudi Arabia. It would really make up for a nice sort of, you know, finish finishing of Vision 2030, even though Vision 2030 doesn't really end in 2030. Those dates right. sync up nicely. <laughs> It does. It would be. It'd be a coup. It'd be another showcase. You know, it, it was a coup to get the G20 in 2020. Um, yeah, this would be. This would be something. And and they're already going through these transformations in Riyadh. Very ambitious transformations. And what Fahad al Rashid was talking about, they're all they're going to attempt to do anyway. But yeah, it would be. Um, it would be a, a, a big a big win. And Riyadh is really changing a lot. I mean, it's obviously something we talk about literally every week, but um, all of these new neighborhoods, um, different, I mean, you know, the Riyadh metro, ways of getting around. It's sort of a city on the rise. It seems like this would be really cool if they were able to get it. We're obviously a little biased. We're going to be rooting for them. Um, but, but, you know, that, that, is, that is interesting. So you said that the date for that is about 18 months from now they make the announcement. Yeah, usually they do it late in the seventh year. So November, they're expecting in, in late 2023, so usually November. I should add that uh, three of the last five Expo 2020, three of the last five World Expos have been in Asia. So 2005 in Japan, 2010 in China, 2025 upcoming. So not last three or so, you know, the upcoming next one will be in Osaka. So maybe they're, maybe they're ready to move away from Asia, see if they come back to the, mid, the Middle East, Saudi. It Again, that's like, if it's come down to South Korea and Saudi Arabia. It seems like Dubai had a lot of success um, with their expo. Um, and, and Richard, when we were there in 2012 or 2013, I think, they were advertising for it heavily, and it was like seven years out. So... <laughs> You know, big deal. That's a good. That's a good pull because that's a good memory. But yeah, I think I think there was a lot of impetus as uh, Saudi was looking at this because it's a good money maker. Mm-hmm. You got 22 million people coming in. 70 percent of the, the, that 22 million visits were were domestic. So these are Emiratis. So imagine if you do that in Saudi Arabia, what the numbers you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I definitely think the the success of the Dubai Expo was incentive for the Saudis to go, hey, you know, let's let's throw our hat in this ring. Fascinating. Richard, my one big thing this week, we've obviously talked a lot about Neom a good bit so far <laughs> on this program. Last week, my one big thing was the potential for a massive Foxconn plant in the kingdom there. And we've also talked about how Neom is now one of the most sought after real estate plays in Saudi Arabia these days, according to Knight Frank. There's just a lot going on there. We haven't had a chance to talk about the latest announcement, and since many of our listeners and viewers follow Saudi even just a little bit, most have probably heard it by now. It's called Trojina, and I hope that I'm pronouncing it correctly. It is a vertical mountain village, and Richard, when this was announced in early March uh, 2022 this year, just a few weeks ago, the I saw the usual coverage for it, had a bit of deja vu with it. You just scroll through the headlines, you see certain words in all caps, 
a lot a lot of sales going on with this, but this is actually really cool. It's essentially a, a mountain, a vertical mountain village is what they're calling it, but it's a ski resort. It's like a, a town in the Saudi mountains. It'll have six distinctive development districts centered around tailored experiences that blend real with virtual architectural and engineering innovations, according to Neom, all to create a destination like no other on earth. It's a year round tourist destination. And uh, for our viewers on YouTube, you'll see um, all the B-roll here. It just is an incredibly ambitious undertaking. You have the ski village, you have ultra luxury family and wellness resorts, wide range of retail stores and restaurants, sports activities. It's not just for skiing. It's a, you know, in the summer there will be, you know, mountain biking. Um, and then of course, what you'll probably see on the screen right now is a just massive, uh, looks like man-made lake that has a huge, that juts over a cliff. I it's really, I mean, can't even describe it. You just have to see it. Um, uh, either look it up if you're an audio listener or you'll see it here on YouTube. Interesting though, that in winter temperatures at Trojina do frequently drop below zero degrees Celsius at about 2,600 meters above sea level. So outdoor skiing will be a really cool and unique feature of Trojina in Saudi Arabia. It is positioning itself to be the first GCC outdoor skiing destination. Um, kind of Richard looks like a little bit of a Saudi version of Lake Como or Switzerland. I don't know. It just, when you see this and you, you just see, it's another thing we do. And, and we talk about this a lot, but when we see stuff like this, you do have to just take a moment to actually take in what you're looking at. You know, this is Saudi Arabia we're talking about. And yet these are skiers going through sort of man-made and natural mountain, uh, side areas, I guess. I don't know how to really describe it, but um, I thought this deserved some extra attention this week just because we hadn't covered it really. And, and you know, this would be a unique, we talk about what attracts people to visit certain places around the world. And one of the things that, you know, that I like look for when I travel is something that's completely unique that you can get somewhere. And for Saudi Arabia, I mean, this is, this is very, very unique. I don't know if you've seen much about this, but uh, just thought this was interesting and, um, you know, we've again we've You've talked a lot about the Neom, but you, you gotta, gotta see it. Pictures. Yeah, uh, but it looks awesome. Uh, the pictures, well, in that Daily Mail thing, it has a bunch of pictures, like seventeen of them. Mm -hmm. The Daily Mail. Um, we, I should mention. Sorry to interrupt you, but the Daily Mail is the perfect outlet to just give you all the art on this thing and just uh, just let you know all you need to know via images. But sorry to sorry to interrupt. Lots, you, of, lots of all caps and bolds with the Daily Mail <laughs> yeah, thing. and exactly. always images. Uh, I have no words. It's just, you know, you asked me what it reminded me of. It reminds me of Asgard, you know, where Thor's home. <laughs> These mock-ups are just astounding. Um, just astounding. And, you know, you know my inclination. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always pulled to the practical. Uh, uh, but this is this is ambitious in the extreme and would be an amazing thing. But the the architectural, I don't, you know, I look at some of this stuff and wonder if the you know if the architectural capability and construction capability is even there. But it's uh, like I said, some of these some of these mock-ups and uh, remind me of Asgard. <laughs> it's the, and skiing know, would be amazing in Saudi. I think that'd be cool. Um, Adam Siminski, when he was on the former president of Capstark, when he was on with us, uh, he was talking a little bit about how while there isn't skiing in Saudi Arabia, they are building that big mall of Riyadh, I think, that will have indoor skiing. Uh, but there are mountains in Saudi Arabia that 
you know, if there were snow that you, you, you could ski on them. And I think this is, you know, I think this fits the bill, but, um, well, this, it looks like, you know, it looks like, you know, some of these mock-ups again, these are just mock-ups, but it looks like sort of Zaha Hadid worked with the, you know, someone with a glitter machine, mm-hmm. you know, there's no right angles. Everything's curved. Everything's, uh, uh, and I shouldn't say that she has passed, so rest in peace. But you know, it, it it just evokes you know lots of curves and and nothing, no right angles. It's it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It's also, and I I don't we don't need to dwell on it too long. But um, one thing that I would like to say about this, and again, this is a theme that we've hit on. But if you were to imagine this being announced five years ago you would, I mean, people would laugh at it, frankly. They'd, they'd say it's so ridiculous and so over the top. And I think a lot of people had that reaction to Neom when it was announced. It said $500 billion, like that's a lot of money and this is so ambitious. And now it sort of seems like this is not that outlandish for them to have this concept. The delivery date for this is 2026. That's four years from now. So we'll know quickly um, how this is shaping up, but it and, and, and one more thing, it, it, Neom and, and all of these um, developments around Neom are all emphasizing sustainable development, blending uh, man-made developments with nature. Just um, just very, very cool. And the again, check this out. You can check it out on our website. You'll see some B-roll if you're watching this on YouTube, but the images are astounding, really. Part of it, even regardless of what happens there, you know, and, and this is this is a this would be a huge project, and and let's let's face it. I mean, with, you know, like the Red Sea uh, development, uh, that's taking time, and that's a very large project. There's a bit of sculpting going on in terms of uh, landscape and geology, but uh, you know, these things take time. So I wouldn't expect this in 2026. But it is interesting when you go up to when you see these images of Neom, and you know, the mountain to the sea, because these mountains are, are really reminds me a little bit of Oman in some ways. Uh, but then you have the the sea, which apparently is just gorgeous too. So it's it's quite the setting. I, I don't see this happening in three four years, but but the the mockups are extraordinary. Amazing, Richard. Uh, enough fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've got a really really great discussion coming up right now with Brad Gandy, Colonel Brad Gandy from Usmidum. So um, let's get right to that. Richard, on last week's episode, we talked about the huge transformation going on in Saudi Arabia's defense and security sector with author Bilal Saab, who has a book coming out on the subject. In that book and in our conversation with Bilal, he also talked about the role of the United States military training mission, Ustam, Ustam, in that significant transformation. If you missed that conversation, check it out on our website, YouTube channel. One person who did not miss our talk on the Saudi military transformation and USMIDM's role in it was the head of USMIDM from 2019 to 2021, Colonel Brad Gandy, who agreed to join us today on the 966 to talk about it. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for thank you for having me. It's good to be here. This is ideal, Brad. We 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 wanted to uh, when we set up the 966, we wanted to create a platform that generates informed conversation about uh, real topics in Saudi Arabia. And uh, we wanted to attract expertise, and we've plugged in our network. But this is the ideal situation where we had an expert, someone who literally, you know, is you know, a big part of the conversation with Bolau was was the um, U.S. military training mission in Saudi Arabia, which is the heartbeat, ground zero of U.S. Saudi defense cooperation, and 
And so we are honored and thrilled that you were listening and then just delighted that you gave us a call. So this is a, this is a really bonus. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. It's, uh, you know, uh, you, get, you guys do uh, a lot of really cool stuff for the relationship. And uh, so I'm, th- I'm thrilled to be here. So thank you. Appreciate it. Brad's got one of the more impressive resumes out there before serving as head of, of USMITM in Saudi Arabia. He served as a senior U.S. defense official and defense attache to Yemen. He also served as U.S. Army attache to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia between 2006 and 2010. Brad, I think it makes sense to start by talking a little bit about what USMITM is, some history mm-hmm. and what roles it plays in the, the U.S.-Saudi relationship. So, yeah, um, USMITM has been around um, in one form or another um really in many ways since the 1950s um although it the in shortly after the second world war um the kingdom uh of saudi arabia uh began to uh acquire things like um old uh ch-47 dakotas um a lot of people have seen pictures of the founder of saudi arabia uh, king abdulaziz um flying around uh the kingdom uh in old uh, CH-47 aircraft. Um, Those were um, uh, basically uh, surplus World War II aircraft that were purchased um, sort of in the the waning years of the war uh, and then afterwards. um, And those were some of the original um, aircraft uh, owned by uh, by Saudi Arabia. Um, There's even a a famous story about uh, uh, Abdulaziz having a special chair installed in the middle of the fuselage. Um, so that he, so that he could look around in all different directions as they flew over his kingdom, and so in many ways, you know, it's striking. You know, th- that little anecdote is striking because it shows how even in the earliest days of its founding, uh, the Saudis were leveraging um, their defense partnerships to enable um, the royal family and the you know the 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 emerging governance structures of the kingdom um, to be able to do a better job of getting around and seeing what was going on. Um, and that is something that, that continues to this day. Um, in its current uh, incarnation, USMIT uh, has been around since uh, 1977. Um, you know, that, that's the date of sort of the latest set of a court, governing accords in terms of uh, the U.S. military training mission's presence in the kingdom and so on. Um, and it is, uh, in many ways, uh, the largest uh, security cooperation organization in the world, um, both in terms of personnel and uh, in terms of uh, scope of activity and certainly scale of activity, um, and it really became uh, a you know a, a a large part of uh, the defense partnership uh, in the wake of the uh, Gulf War uh, in 1990. Um, after that, um, the Saudis begin to really uh, invest heavily in their defense capabilities, um, purchasing you know F-15 aircraft. Um, purchasing all kinds of naval equipment uh, from the United States and from from other and from other countries, but um, and then also uh, significant amounts of ground combat systems, tanks, artillery systems, uh, radars. Um, you know the 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 list the list goes on is about as as long and as as extensive as you as you can make it. Um, and so, you know, in many ways, um, the job of USMITM has been to facilitate the um, foreign military sales process uh, for the kingdom. Um, kind of real quick, what, what is foreign military sales, FMS? That is the government-to-government contracts uh, process by which um, other countries, Saudi Arabia, many of our European allies, 
basically anybody around the world, um, works with the United States government to acquire um, U.S. military uh, systems. Uh, this could be anything from uh, M1 tanks to artillery systems to um, computer software. Um, it's, it's kind of the gamut. Kind of depend. Kind of depends on what it is. Um, the best example in the Kingdom's case is the uh, F-15 uh, SA, SA for Saudi Arabia, uh, program, which is the largest uh, foreign military sales uh, contract in the world. Um, and, um, and it is delivering um, the F-15 SA fighter uh, aircraft um, and, and has been delivering uh, over the years uh, to, the, to the Kingdom. It, um, and so basically, what, the way FMS works, just very quickly, is essentially countries um, rent, if you will, the United States military acquisition system. So Saudi Arabia pays into a trust fund, and then the U.S. defense acquisition system provides the military equipment. And, and, and not just for the kingdom, but for all our customers globally, the United States Department of Defense's policy is on, um, and, and it's been this way for, for decades, um, is we do uh, what's called um, full package um, support. Uh, so it's not, we don't just provide an aircraft. We provide the training, um, not just how to operate it, but how to maintain it. And then we also do the, um, uh, provide all the maintenance and technical support for that that system is going to need over the lifetime of its utility um, in uh, the, um, you know, in, in, the, in the particular country, in this case, Saudi Arabia. So, um, and so that's what USMIT has been doing um, for, you know, certainly, uh, you know, like I said, in its modern incarnation since 1977. Um, and that is, you know, it, and it's a big job. Um, the, uh, and, and it's, an, it's an important one and, uh, and, it's, been, and it's been doing it uh, very well. I mean, the roughly speaking, over the last, say, roughly 40 years, I mean, the scope of uh, foreign military sales to the kingdom is uh, right around a trillion dollars. Um, that's a lot of business. Um, and more importantly, um, that's a lot of American jobs that has been that have been sustained, um, in some cases created um, over the years um, of the of, of the partnership. Um, and it is uh, and, and it's significant. So uh, I'll kind of pause there and uh, see what see, see what else is on your mind. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point about the FMS and the, the job creation. Um, the other thing about the foreign military sales, and I think doing business with the U.S., is you referenced it, the, 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 the service and the ongoing maintenance and training that comes in the context of the FMS uh, relationship. Because I, I know in comparison to many other countries, uh, other countries will just sort of drop the hardware off, say you paid for it. Uh, but there isn't the requisite training and maintenance uh, you know, systems put in place. Is that, is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the list of the, the examples of other countries who sell um, their, their, their respective partners, um, a, um, a, a naval destroyer with no engines, no communications, and no guns are legion. Yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, re I'll refrain from diming out particular, you know, particular offenders. Um, but yeah, those, exa those examples are legion uh, here you know, throughout, throughout the world. Um, 
the United States does not do that. Um, and we and, and, you know, for good reason. I mean, not only is it bad business, but it's bad for the partnerships and the alliances we have. Right. right. So, the, so the maker of the F-15, McDonnell Douglas, right? Um, yes. So if they, they, in essence, are con, in an FMS context, they're contracting with the U.S. military. They were contracting with you, right? Well, not with you, Smitham, but with the Department of Defense. So when I right. say right. the FMS process rents the um, Department of the U.S. military acquisition, that's exactly what I mean. So the F-15 program office that, you know, provides the F-15 aircraft to the United States Air Force also has a separate division that works the F-15 SA program. Right. And just for context for our listeners, that, when you say largest security cooperation organization in the world, you're talking that FMS, U.S. Saudi, maybe FMS sales activity, that's value in excess of 100, 100 billion, correct? Uh, yeah. It's, it, and, it, and, and that's been the case year in, year out over, you know, for, for, for about 20 years. Um, it's, a, it's a big program. Yeah, extraordinary. Must have been, it must have been fascinating running it. Um, yes, it was. <laughs> how many personnel? Um, it it kind of it kind of depends. You know, varies depending on the size of the case, uh, or how many cases we have, and 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 so and, and so on and so forth. But you know, um, you know, a, a shade over a shade over two hundred people. Yeah, and that's impressive. that's big for a for a security cooperation organization. Most are manned somewhere you know in the tens and twenties and and of people. So in, you know, as we look at the arc of, of Saudi Arabia's purchases and the relationship via Usumidum, um, in terms of the technical system-based defense equipment, basically the hardware that Saudi Arabia has, uh, what's your assessments of their defense capabilities? You know, there's always people, there's always these rundowns of X number of fighter planes, X number of, of uh, ships and tanks and that sort of thing. That doesn't necessarily speak to fighters' capability, fighting capability, but I'd be interested in, 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 in your assessment of where they are in terms of their military hardware. Well, in, in, in terms of the purchases that they've made over, the, you know, going back, going back really to, you know, the end of the Gulf War um, and uh, in, in 1991, um, and then subsequently, you know, they have, the, the Saudis have made, I think, some smart investments, you know, um, uh, you know, a lot of airspace over the Arabian Peninsula that needs to be defended from, you know, multiple bad actors. Um, the uh, so systems like you know the F-15SA, um, the AWACS that the Saudis bought in the in the 80s, uh, you know, for the Reagan administration and so on. Those all are those are smart. Those are very smart investments. Um, similarly, uh, you know, uh, you know the Navy um, has not gone out and you know, I mean. The Saudis don't need aircraft carriers, but they do need, you know, they do need destroyers. Um, they do need ships capable of patrolling and maintaining a presence um, along the kingdom's littoral, you know, which is in the Persian Gulf and along the Red Sea. Um, and, you know, because, you know, the Saudis um, are constrained by um, three of the world's major global choke, point, choke points. Um, you know, you have the Strait of Hormuz in the, uh, in the Arabian Gulf. You have the Babel Mandeb um, uh, at the southern end of the Red Sea, and at the north end of the Red Sea, you have the Suez Canal. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, littoral security matters to the kingdom. So they, they've, they've made, you know, they've made some smart investments there. Um, and then, you know, their land forces, um, 
you know, you have both, uh, now to be very clear here, my focus was on the Ministry of Defense in terms of the Royal Saudi Land Forces, and that is use Mittum's um, right. uh, role. We didn't play a role with the uh, uh, Saudi Arabia National Guard. That is a, right. that's a separate program, separate ministry. Um, but in terms of, you know, land combat power, you know, the Saudis have, the Saudis have a large, you know, and, and they've, you know, purchased and invested heavily in um, modern uh, ground combat systems, the M1, uh, the M1 Abrams tank, um, you know, the, um, you know, modern uh, U.S. howitzer systems, uh, artillery systems, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. And then, um, you know, longstanding partnerships with any number of wheeled vehicle manufacturers um, in the United States. So the, the, the very fortunate road that brings us here to this conversation with, with you, Colonel Gandhi, is started actually with, a, with an article written by Bilal Saab, a defense expert, in which he was talking about resetting the Saudi relationship. And in it, he said, uh, what's underway in Saudi Arabia and what is little known is a, a, a massive, uh, profound uh, military transformation. And and uh, one of that was really the, the motivation to get in touch with Bilal and have that conversation. One of the interesting things he said, he said, uh, on the U.S. side, um, there was initial impetus to have um, uh, defense management specialists from Washington come in and handle that relation, help, help with that transformation. What happened, and this is according to Bilal, but... Um, it was that the Saudis uh, were, were more familiar with the Yusimitim relationship and, and those relationships. And so is it fair to say that in terms of U.S. participation in this military transformation, that it's, it's of the Royal Land Forces, not, not the National Guard, as you point out, uh, is, is being led by a Yusimitim? No, I mean, I, well, let me, let me, I think, it, I think there's a way to better characterize. Um, so, um, and, and, and I think you have to go back and kind of start, um, how did Saudi military transformation come about? Where's it trying to go? How does the U.S. government play a role? Yeah. Um, because I think the thing, you know, the, the bottom line is the United States Department of Defense is fully in support of what the Saudis are trying to do. Um, there are, I think, you know, kind of, as in any large organization, there are some, there are some uh, discussions about how to, how to handle business better. Um, the but but support for the uh, Saudi transformation is you know across the depart U.S. Department of Defense. Um, there is you know there is support for it, whether that's at DSCA or U.S. Central Command or you know from a policy perspective uh, with, with, within within the Office of the Secretary of Defense. But uh, you know the so bearing that in mind, you know back in you know, 20, uh, kind of 2015, 2016, uh, the Saudis began to realize that um, they needed to do better uh, in their defense establishment. Um, uh, they knew that they had a lot of the really good systems, but they really decided they wanted to be um, a, you know, a, a real partner um, with the United States in being a, um, an exporter of security and stability for the region. Um, and so to that end, one of the things that they started to do was they're starting to transform how their um, military does business comprehensively. 
um, and it has resulted in the achievement of and the you know and 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 they're and they're looking at this as a you know a ten year uh, process um, to achieve, um, but they have already um, made substantial gains in what they're trying to do. For example. Um, you know, they have created uh, now a uh, what's called the Assistant Ministry of Defense for Executive Affairs. Um, that is a direct um, uh, equivalency to the uh, U.S. Department of Defense's Office of the Secretary of Defense. And so what that organization does is that provides the governance for um, strategy, policy, um, procurement, um, and administration that OSD provides for um, the uniformed services. Um, separately, they are reforming their joint staff. Um, and then they seek to transform the their armed services from the quasi-operational organizations that they are right now um, into um, force-generating organizations that are then that, you know, uh, man, train, equip, and then provide trained and ready forces to a unified command. Um, and so really what they're doing is they are adopting the direct acquire, generate and operate model for force management that is common in the United States and most of our NATO allies. And so to that end, that, that's where they're headed. And that is um, you know, and in so doing, um, you know, what, the, what they hope to achieve, um, and I think what they, what they will achieve eventually is, um, they're going to become a, um, a, a in many ways, I would, I, I think the security partner of choice for the United States in the, you know, in the region in terms of ensuring regional security and stability in what is by anybody's definition, a pretty rough neighborhood. Absolutely. And I want to come back. I I, I, I I like that exporting security and stability. I want to we can unpack that uh, farther down the road in the conversation. Um, so essentially, they're trying to remake, in essence, not only operational but the the, the, the soldier ethic. I mean, it, it, are they they're trying to fundamentally transform the whole culture as well as the the operational mode. Is that correct? Well, so Saudi Arabia, and what most people don't realize is Saudi Arabia actually has a really long um, military history um, going back to, uh, I mean, you know, if you look at just look at the story of the founder of, Sa of Saudi Arabia, Abdulaziz, um, roughly speaking from about, you know, the beginning of the 20th century um, and certainly from about you know uh, the early aughts of the uh, of the 1900s through um, the final battle against the Akhwan in 1929 at the Battle of Sibilla, Abdulaziz was in personal combat for almost 20 years of his life. And oh, by the way, you know, forging a kingdom while he did it. Um, <laughs> and he and 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 it's interesting as you if you look at the. You know the story of the you know the founding of the founding of Saudi of Saudi Arabia, particularly um, when uh, the Saudis um, uh, uh, took over the Hejaz. Um, one of the knocks against um, Arab militaries historically has been 
um, decentralized operations. What's fascinating about that story about, you know, the, 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 as the Saudis assumed rule uh, over the Hejaz, um, uh, Abdulaziz never personally conducted any of the major military operations that resulted in, um, you know, taking Mecca, taking Medina, taking Jeddah. Um, those were all done by subordinates of his while he was busy running a kingdom and, you know, and, and putting in place the, the structures appropriate um, to the kingdom of the time. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, the, you know, it was in the campaigns to um, subdue the Equine, uh, you know, the, you know the, the recalcitrant tribes uh, at the time in the, in the late 1920s that you had the first um, episode of defense cooperation between the between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and a Western power. That was when um, the Royal Air Force, you know, the British Royal Air Force, um, provided um, uh, a small number of aircraft um, and pilots to support um, Abdulaziz's efforts against the Aquan. Um, and there are famous uh, famous paintings of. Uh, you know the, the you know the the aircraft arriving in those in those early days, and that was the start of what we now call the modern Royal Saudi Air Force. And that was a decisive uh, assistance. That was very helpful to that to that effort. Yeah, absolutely. We've absolutely. talked to, we've talked about Emir uh, Saud, King Abdulaziz, and his extraordinary career, and also his his uh, really astute political and military judgment. Um, mm -hmm. He, you know, I've I've likened him as a Saudi George Washington, but in many ways he's more than that. Um, all the way from that, you know, that nighttime raid in, in you know January 1902 to take over Doria in the first place, you know, mm -hmm. he, as I see, he and his 40 of his best friends sort of riding across the desert at night. Then to you know, as you say, that's 1902. 1929 was uh, was the Battle of Sibylla. So exactly, he was an extraordinary, extraordinary figure. So. Um, and you give us a good sense of, of, of where they are. And, and I, when we talked earlier this week, uh, Colonel Gandhi, uh, and anybody who's knowledgeable about Saudi Arabia, you emphasized again and again that this is going to take time. Yep. Uh, uh, who's, what's the motivation behind this? Was there somebody who came in and said, okay, we've got to re remake how we address our defense uh, institutions. Well, I, I think in many ways, you know, it, it goes back to a lot of the decision making that was going on as um, Vision 2030 was being um, created. Um, they also took a look at their defense sector. And although um, defense transformation is not, I guess, officially a part of Vision 2030, and some of that kind of depends on how you how, how you parse that a little bit. Um, but it is certainly a corollary effort, um, and it envisions um, creating a modern professional military, um, you know, that is capable of, um, you know, first world standard uh, joint and combined operations, um, and that allows the kingdom to be a part of international coalitions and to support um, efforts at ensuring uh, regional, even global peace and stability. And so that's where they want to get their forces to. And so that is precisely why, um, you know, they're putting in uh, and creating and then, um, you know, and putting in uh, things like, you know, uh, the Assistant Ministry of Defense for Executive Affairs, you know, their version of OSD, 
to provide that um, top level policy and acquisition um, and administrative governance. Um, it's why the uniform services are focusing and reforming into organizations much more akin to the, the functions that the U.S. Armed Service staffs provide to, to, to the U.S. military. I know, by the way, you know, the, most, of our, most of the NATO, our NATO allies uh, and, and NATO member countries operate the same way. Um, in terms of, you know, the service staffs, the Air Force, the land forces, um, the Navy, um, focusing on um, the manning, training, and equipping functions, and then providing those forces to a unified command um, that the Saudis call their Joint Forces Command, which then operates those forces um, as needed, and you know, um, in, 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 in support of wh whatever activity the kingdom has going on at the, at the time. So if Saudi Arabia, and you, you, I guess this is akin to exporting security and stability, um, mm -hmm. the ability to do that. So if Saudi Arabia becomes proficient at this, can you elaborate a little bit on what, what that would mean for the U.S. as it approaches its security uh, priorities in the region and elsewhere? Oh, it absolutely 100 um, percent enables and um, the United States to... Um, for lack of a better term, to basically be able to um, focus per our own national defense strategy um, against peer-to-peer -peer competitors in Russia and China. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to focus on the Indo-Pacific or, you know, everything that's going on in Europe now with it, with really in light of everything that's happened over the last month in Ukraine. Um, a, you know, a, a certainly a revanchist Russia um, that is absolutely not um, uh, interested in being a contributor to peace and security in the global order. It's really hard to focus on those two significant peer, uh, peer or near peer threats um, and competition if you're also at the same time um, constantly having problems in an area of the world that has um, that contains, you know, in arguably the bulk of the uh, known fossil fuel resources uh, for energy. Um, and you keep getting sucked in to, um, uh, you know, to, to incidents in the, in the Middle East. If the Saudis are able to, you know, be that partner um, uh, and essentially, you know, become the nation that shoulders the, burp, the bulk of, if you will, um, the, uh, ensuring peace and stability, uh, not just in the Arabian Peninsula, but, um, you know, the, the Middle East region uh, writ large, then all of a sudden, um, you know, that is something the United States doesn't have to worry about in the same way it did um, uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago. You know, you, ha you have examples of where, you know, the Carter Doctrine um, said, you know, the United States will treat um, anybody, you know, any move by any foreign power um, to um, threaten uh, energy, you know, the, the free flow of energy resources out of the Persian Gulf as a threat to, you know, a significant strategic threat to the United States interests. Well, if we have a partner, in this case, the Saudi, you know, the Saudi, you know, the, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, that can essentially do that on their own, um, in, uh, then that is all to the good for the United States. 
It's fascinating because you 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 put a finger on this. Is 2015, 2016 when this thinking began and the and the uh, and this transformation was was started. It coincides a little bit, as as you know, the Saudis are are somewhat disenchanted with uh, U.S. policy of late. I think starting with um, with that October 2019 attack on Abqaiq, um which you know there was no response to. Uh, speaking of the Carter Doctrine, uh, and then the um, you know the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which uh, you know many people in the region found unsettling. So it's interesting how how. Uh, they're already on this path uh, internally. Uh, it seems to be meeting up right now with a little bit of disenchantment with U.S. foreign policy towards the region. Well, so first off, I would take issue that there was no response to the uh, to the attacks on the oil fields. Um, the in what, fact, is it, fair, is it fair to say from the Saudi perspective it was insufficient? No, I don't. I I, I wouldn't. I I wouldn't care. I I would not characterize that. Um, you know, when the first ever operational deployment of a U.S. THAAD battery to um, uh, anywhere occurs, that's a significant step. Um, and it's placed, um, you know, precisely to um, help defend the kingdom against um, a, you know, a, a clearly identified and ongoing uh, threat from Iran. Um, the That being said, it also, um, I think, demonstrated that going forward the kingdom in order to achieve its you know its stated its stated goals um you know needs to be able to kind of do this thing on the, these sorts of activities on their own so that um so for example one of the things that most people don't know um i i think it is that um the kingdom of saudi arabia has purchased um seven thad batteries is that right? Uh, to give you an idea of the magnitude of that purchase, that's the same number that the United States Army has for operations worldwide. Wow. <laughs> and when are those deliverable? So, case you know the you know the initial you know the the initial case was signed in 2017. Um, the because you know because production lines had to be restarted. Um, the you know, it wasn't like there were bad batteries sitting around off the shelf. Um, so. Um, you know, by the end of the decade, those batteries and the, you know the crews, you know, and the train train crews and everything to support them um, will be up and operating. Um, the uh, and that will give uh, Saudi Arabia the largest amount of concentrated anti ballistic fire anti ballistic missile firepower um, of just about anybody in the world. That's extraordinary. I didn't know that, and that's 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 good to hear. But it also leads me to uh, the next question. For example, Abcake or what the Houthis are doing now, and when the, mm -hmm. the asymmetric aspect of this, mm -hmm. you know, throwing in in uh, uh, armed drones and and cruise missiles, which I guess that is not designed for. Well, uh, it well actually actually it is. I mean, you have you have the incident that just happened in the UAE where you had a th you know one of the two. One of the, you know, the UAE has two THAAD batteries. Um, one of those systems shot down a Houthi ballistic missile recently. And that's a ballistic missile, yeah. And and, yeah. and so are we? Are they? Are we involved at all in steps to try and uh, counter these asymmetric attacks? In Absolutely. other words, 
you know, yes. significantly below the level of a ballistic. Missile. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I can tell you from my personal involvement in that process over two years, um, uh, the Saudis have made enormous strides in being able to um, address, you know, ad address those uh, address those threats. Um, and they have done remarkably successful. I, I, I mean, you know, personally, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here, um, you know, with, you know, with all 10 fingers and all 10 toes, um, precisely because of Saudi air defense, because I happen to have been in places that were on target lists, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and thanks to the good efforts of the Royal Saudi Air Defense Force and the Royal Saudi Air Force, um, you know, nothing happened. That's a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing. So let me ask you a, a sort of off the off the reservation question. Maybe, maybe not. What, what what's your assessment of where the U.S. Saudi defense relationship is right now? And I say this because it, we we see in the, on, at the political sphere this uh, you know especially after Ukraine, um, you know, uh, uh, relationships with with Russia and China. Uh, we don't know, and you know, they're, they're, they are dealing with China for missiles and that sort of thing. But what's your sense of the U.S.-Saudi defense relationship, both now and as vis-a-vis -vis and in comparison with with uh, previous time periods? So, so there has always, so there has always been a very strong mill-to-mill -mill connection mm -hmm. um, between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, and. And that relationship has always remained strong in spite of um, disagreements over other issues. Going back to the, you know, going back to, for example, the OPEC embargo, 1973, um, you know, there were a lot, you know, I mean, you know, the, you know, literally, you know, oil tankers full of ink were expended on, you know, uh, on, on phrases like the oil weapon um, at the time. Um, the partnership continued, um, in spite, you know, in, you know, despite all that, um, you know, and, and, and that remain, and that remains true today. I mean, even when you had, um, you know, a lot of, uh, angst at political levels during my entire time as the, as, as the, you know, in the saddle and this, and oh, by the way, this is also true you know, kind of from the perspective of when I was the senior defense official for Yemen, but was coordinating with the Saudis on various things as well. I, you know, it never impacted my ability to talk to any of my counterparts uh, on various things. Um, and that, and, and that's a sign of the strength of the, of, of the relationship um, and the importance of it. Um, because, you know, um, circumstances are going to change over time vis-a-vis, Geopolitical, geopolitical issues. But what doesn't change, and I don't think, you know, is likely to change, is the commitment of lots of, you know, both the, you know, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense and certainly the Saudi Ministry of Defense in their understanding and belief in the importance of the bilateral par uh, security partnership. I couldn't agree more. And as you say, the, that use of minimum relationship goes back to the 50s. But even before that, that mill to mill relationship is a foundational backbone of the relationship. And that's and that's not only because of the, the, the security aspect, but the, the interpersonal relationships. Yes. Uh, they you know, that have been, because, you know, built over time and are profound and very real. And, and, and they're the glue in many ways. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, beyond all the policy. So, so let's let's move back a little bit because you've had an extraordinary career. And you mentioned Yemen. You've had key leadership roles in Kuwait, Iraq, Sudan, Tunisia, and Yemen. As you proudly recall, I mean, you you grew up in Libya. You did, yep. you know, you know. So so you're steeped in this region. Um, and one one of the things when you were when you were when you were uh, attaché, a military attaché, in 2006, 2010, uh, you were involved with some of that battle against al-Qaeda in Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia. Can yep. you talk a little bit about the defeat of extremism in Saudi Arabia? And, and, and I, because I said, I think that's little known in the U.S. how, uh, how aggressive and violent and uh, determined the, those attacks were and, and that how... Um, had to be very terrifying for Saudi Arabia and citizens and government alike. Oh, it was. I mean, you know, I mean, when the, you know, in the early days of that fight, um, you know, uh, you know, a couple of, a couple of years before I got uh, to Saudi in, in 2006, you know, I mean, you had tanker truck size um, improvised explosive devices taking out, you know, entire neighborhoods mm-hmm. in various compounds. Um, things were bad. Um, you know, when I got, when I got to the kingdom, uh, in 2006, um, you know, I remember the, you know, the, the horrible, um, incident where a bunch of French civil, uh, French citizens were killed at, while they were at a tourist site. They took a wrong turn on the wrong road and, um, you know, and, and, and were, were targeted, were targeted and killed by, by Al Qaeda uh, members, um, out in the, out in the Western part of the kingdom. Um, you know, you, there were lots, you know, there were lots and lots of people who were really uncertain about the future of, you know, the relationship with the kingdom. That was in 2006. By 2010, um, you know, they had defeated 100% an insurgency in their country. Um, and they had done it without um significant um measures of popular repression that's the that's the remarkable thing about it um you know one of the things that uh, you know the i think most people are are very unaware of is the saudis made extraordinarily effort efforts to enlist um and ensure that the parents of young men in particular who were who got swept up in and, and, and seduced by some really sick, twisted individuals uh, that belonged to Al Qaeda, to get the parents involved to make sure that they began to help these guys come back, you know, come back to the right, you know, the, the right way of thinking and doing business, um, and, and and conduct, and that proved to be largely successful. Um, and what what you know, and so. When you're, you know, when you're, when you, when you see them achieve all this, um, you know, and then I left in 2010, you know, it was, you know, the, sort of the, I guess the best way to describe it is the, you know, the immediate fight against Al Qaeda had been won, um, but it was unclear if the gains would be able to be sustained. So then when I came back eight years later um, to take over my duties as the senior defense official for Yemen, I was completely blown away by all the progress and development that had been made. And I remember going to um, one of the new malls that had been built up on the north side of the city 
and walking through and realizing and seeing all that all the changes that were you know part of the emerging efforts uh, with Vision 2030 and realizing you know what went through my head was wow we won the good guys won and that is 100% why the game you know Vision 2030 is so important and why you know it um, it matters so much is because you know assuming you know, the broad objectives of Vision 2030 are met, you know, broadly defined as the kingdom uh, uh, replacing oil as the main pillar of its, uh, of, of, of its economy, um, you know, being able to create industries um, in that uh, within the kingdom that allow for the employment of the bulk of Saudi citizens um, and can serve as a, an economic engine, not just for the, not just for Saudi Arabia, but for the region writ large. What happens as a result of that um, is that it uh, directly addresses the grievance basis that had fueled so much of the revolutionary ideologies um, that groups like Al Qaeda, the Iranians, um, and a lot of that ilk. Um, broadly described as violent extremist organizations, because uh, you got to throw ISIS in there as well, um, have been um, spouting for decades, um, and and this is this is how you consign um, that, those sick, twisted ideologies to the ash heap of history. Fascinating, because because we talk about Vision Twenty Thirty all the time, and we talk about it as a social economic uh, transformation and. And your angle is it's not only that, it's also security transformation, uh, in essence, by, mm -hmm. by, Absolutely. Yeah, by removing, uh, removing potential recruits and all sorts of, of, you know, bad actors, not only by, you know, taking them out of play, but also reducing their attractiveness to the rest of the population. And it's that latter point that is, that is the key piece of it. You know, it's creating options and a future that cause the snake oil, if you will, that groups uh, that, that violent extremist, um, you know, dead end organizations like, like Al Qaeda, ISIS and and all the rest of it offer as completely unattractive. You know, their their potential pool of recruits looks at that and goes, yeah, no, this this isn't working for what I, I want to do with my life, man. I've got better things to do. So. Uh and it's been fascinating talking with you both now and earlier in the week. And what so often happens when we do preliminary conversations, some of that's some great stuff that unfortunately we can't bring I in wish here. we were recording, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it gets, you know, this has been fantastic and uh, content. And, and we, there's even better stuff. I mean, not better stuff, but there's equally good stuff that we'll leave on the cutting room floor. So, so uh, Colonel Gandhi, you, you know, you're an astute observer. You're right at the heart of this uh, U.S.-Saudi defense cooperation, mm -hmm. um, and you're seeing the fundamental changes. Why do you think it's it's not resonating, or is it resonating in in Washington D.C.? Um, I, I I think it I think it is where it matters. Um, the you know very 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 various you know political political factions uh, and or um, actors in the U.S. Are going to are, are going to say whatever they're going to say, regardless regardless of you know whatever reality on the ground uh, happens to be. 
Um, but I think I th but I think where it matters, um, it, you know, it is it is understood um, that 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 change it, that change is occurring. Now, I wish I would certainly wish that were more broadly understood, um, you know, through you know throughout um, throughout the United States and, and, and throughout the world. Because frankly, I think the Saudis have gotten a bad rap um, under you know under um, uh, over 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 the years, and and that's unfortunate because the partnership really matters. And, and why, you know, why, do, why do I say that? Well, on any given day, um, somewhere between 15 and 20% of the global shipping in the world goes through the Babel Mandate, um, you know, between, between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, uh, coming, coming, south out, coming south out of the Red Sea and flowing, in, and, and flowing into, the, into the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. um, that's the commercial value. The other value is that same passage strait, Suez, Red Sea, Babel, Mandeb, Indian Ocean, is the United States Navy's back door to the South China Sea. So in the event of a crisis, Taiwan maybe, or something else, um, the fastest way for the U.S. Navy to, um, sub to sub uh, support and reinforce its forces already in the in in, in, in the Pacific is to move them from the Mediterranean. There's only one way to do that in a matter of days, as opposed to a two and a half week sail around the southern tip of Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and that's Suez, Red Sea, Babel Mandeb, Gulf of Aden, Indian Ocean. Um, having a solid partner whose geography runs the bulk of that route matters. No ifs, no ands, no buts. It right. really matters. Um, you know, it, it matters for commerce. It matter. It and, and in some ways, especially as as you look at the you know the the, the global transition towards renewable renewable energy. Um, in many ways, the Suez Red Sea Babel Mandeb um, passage is for the 21st century as important as the Strait of Hormuz ever was. In the 1980s, in terms of uh, global global energy conversion, well, yeah, in, ter in, ter in terms of the global in, in terms of the global economy, right? You know, right. and oh, by the way, it matters even more because um, you know the Saudis are now talking about building a um, a massive hydrogen hydrogen plant um, on the west on, on, on the on the west coast, a hop, skip, right. and a jump from the southern entrance of Suez. Right. Um, so the so. The, you know, the, you know, those kind of developments, which, oh, by the way, hopefully, you know, that becomes a game changer in the renewable energy industry, um, because I think the Saudis are going to leapfrog a whole, bu a whole bunch of players in that, in, in that particular market, because they can, because um, they don't have, among other things, legacy industries to hinder them uh, in the creation of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, investing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, oh, by the way, they've got, they've got the cash to do it. Right. Um, the, um, and so, you know, it, it is for all those kinds of reasons why stability and security matter and having a partner in, in, in the form of the kingdom that is capable of being a significant contributor in its own right um, to the maintaining security and stability in that part of the world, which is so critical for the global economy writ large, um, really matters. And so supporting them is... Um, you know, is critical. And I think, and I think that, 
that lesson is certainly is certainly understood. Um, you know where, where it counts where it counts within the U.S. government. Um, I wish it was understood more broadly. We have touched on it, but there's a lot going on right now about sort of like where the U.S.-Saudi relationship stands. We've we've talked talked a little bit about that, and there's a question of whether or not Saudi Arabia sh- should or could or would uh, pump more oil in response to higher energy prices. And then there's also talk about sort of we talked about it a little bit earlier today, just sort of like when there was a kind of uh, palpable, like discernible uh, change in the U.S.-Saudi defense relationship that just seems like maybe 10, 15 years ago, if someone were to invade or or um, attack Saudi Arabia, it would mean U.S. direct support for Saudi Arabia with boots on the ground. And that may not be the case now. Then we also talked a little bit about how, like, in uh, Washington, there isn't a strong... Maybe Saudi Arabia is a little bit underappreciated. In order to have a, tr- a treaty with Saudi Arabia we would need two thirds of the Senate, which seems completely unlikely at this point. Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, how can the United States and Saudi Arabia enhance their military cooperation from here, if if at all? Well, so it, um, I think, you you know, actually, you heard the the outgoing um, uh, U.S. Central Command commander, uh, uh, General McKenzie, talk about that. Uh, recently in, in some of his public statements um, about the importance of regional uh, air and missile defense and supporting the development of that right. to where you have a truly integrated, um, uh, you know, regional air and missile defense um, coalition. Um, and, you know, and I, and I, and, and that, ha- that has been a, that is a goal. Um, the, there is a entire GCC defense committee uh, focused on that. Um, the, um, and, and, but before I go any further, there's one thing you mentioned, and I think I'd like to kind of put a, put a little bit of a contextual um, frame on that. So a lot of people talk about, well, in, you know, in 1990, uh, the U.S. sent, you know, 500,000 uh, troops to the defense of Saudi Arabia. And, uh, 2019 and 2020, in the aftermath of the APCAC, it, it, it sent very small numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you don't need 500,000 people to address an air defense mission. Uh, was to stop an entire Iraqi army that was that already overtaken one country, Kuwait, and was bearing, bearing, bearing down on, on, on the kingdom. Um, so, you know, you don't, you, you send, you send what's needed as opposed to, um, as, as opposed to what some people, what, what some pundits might say, oh, well, you know, you didn't send the same numbers. It's like, no, man, it, it, they're two completely different missions. Um, and what, and, and, and what is, you know, what is significant is that since then, um, you know, the, certainly the Iran based threats have not occurred. Now, um, there is a persistent problem out of, uh, out of Yemen. I mean, we just saw that, we just saw that with the, uh, with the, with, with the attacks on Jeddah. That being said, what is equally remarkable, um, is that, um, you don't have, uh, significant loss of life associated with that. I mean, it, you know, it's tragic that you have, you know, um, burning oil tanks, um, you know, but, um, you know, the, you know, they are, the Saudis are doing a great job of, of defending 
you know, 99% of their, um, of their critical infrastructure. Um, you know, and, and, and it's kind of, you know, the challenge that they have is they have to be right 100% of the time, um, you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Right. The Houthis to be successful, just got to get one through. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, that, that, that's hard. And it's a challenge. It's a it challenge. Is. And they and they have done a, you know, and, and I got to take my hat off to them. I mean, you know, if you want to ask anybody who has fired the most um, Patriot missiles against an active enemy anywhere in the world, it is the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Royal Saudi Air Defense Force. Colonel Brad Gandy, head of the U.S. military training mission in Saudi Arabia from 2019 to 2021. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. This was an awesome discussion. Really appreciate thank, your time. Thank you, thank you for having me. It's, it, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Colonel Gandy, what a treat. Thank you so much. Uh, I know you're on to your next challenge. Uh, I know we'll stay in touch, and, and hopefully we'll get you back on the 966. It's been really great to have you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, this, this, is, this has been a treat, and, uh, you know, uh, like, like I keep telling people, you guys are a force for good. So thanks for what, thanks for what you're doing, and keep at it. Richard, that was an awesome conversation with Brad. Again, reminder, everybody, you can watch these conversations and all these segments individually on YouTube um, that we break them out from the larger podcasts. Just just really great, Richard. Yeah, it's it's a treat and it's really educational, always educational, because not only did he add expertise, he, he, he threw in some different sort of perspective changes. Mm-hmm. You know, and and how we look at things, and what a great conversation, and uh, extremely knowledgeable about this topic. Let's one. get to the uh, let's get to Yalla, 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 Saudi in a minute. Uh, one, uh, Riyadh season twenty twenty one, the marquee festival. The Saudi seasons program closes today after a five month run, begun on October tenth, twenty twenty one. It has welcomed over fifteen million visitors to its thirteen zones spanning 5.4 million square meters. With the slogan, Imagine More, this Riyadh season included several concerts performed by the likes of Sean Paul, Pitbull, Amr Diab, and Muhammad Hamaki, among many others. According to Trade Arabia, it also hosted the kingdom's first cosplay event, attended by hundreds of Saudi nationals, residents, and visitors who dressed up as their favorite movie and cartoon characters. Just amazing that the the Riyadh season looked so fun and incredible. There are a couple really good Instagram handles that are just drone accounts of of Riyadh or, or, uh, you know, drone footage of Riyadh and aerial shots of Riyadh season 2021 and also available in the SPA actually are just incredible. I mean, just it looks really fun. I didn't even notice this, but, you know, we talked on one big thing about the the six month Expo 2020 in Dubai. Attracted 22 million visits. You know, this five-month Riyadh season had 15 million visits. You know, that's, that says something about the domestic audience. And also it says something about how people were really excited about this. And everyone we spoke to, everyone, every Saudi we, we've spoken to that came on this mm-hmm. had a story about this, you know, um, how, how it was really a, a, a great event and a, a, a powerful draw. Speaking of cosplay, I saw this and I was wondering if there would be a Comic-Con in Saudi Arabia this year. I can't find any information on it. It was held in 2020 virtually due to the the pandemic. Um, There will be another event, the Saudi Entertainment and Amusement Expo 2022. That'll take place in May 2022 in Riyadh. Increasingly, there doesn't seem to be 
really an off season for Saudi, for events in oh, Saudi Arabia. But um, I bet that I bet Comic Con has kind of been folded into that big expo for entertainment and amusement. But it, I don't know. It may be. I mean, we we really need to find the next opportunity for you to break out your Aquaman suit. Yes, yes. <laughs> if everybody listening to this likes this wherever they're listening to their podcast, I will wear my Aquaman suit and film this underwater. <laughs> um, uh, yellow number two, the second phase of Saudi Arabia's decision to localize professions in grocery stores and supermarkets came into force on Monday, according to a report in the Saudi Gazette. This phase aims to reduce the number of foreign staff in sales by half in the roles of department manager, deputy branch manager, and branch manager. As of 2021, the Ministry of Human Resources and Social Development announced the localization of 20 professions and activities from a variety of sectors, as well as the establishment of nearly 378,000 employment openings. Hmm. You know, we have, uh, this is number two of our six yellows. Number four will, well, I'll foreshadow, is going to talk about the, the growth in, in employment uh, in Saudi this nitikat, the Saudiization process, is fascinating. There was a, there was a last year, 2021, there was a Boston University Y Analytics and Power for All study that looked at non-oil exporters in Saudi Arabia. And, and the conclusion is what you might expect. It says as a, the result of nitikat in the near term and, and medium term sometimes is actually a reduction of efficiency. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense because let's look at this. These are not exporters, but these are these are professions in grocery stores and supermarkets. I mean, essentially what they're saying is, right, you need to replace your lower paid, more experienced employees with higher paid, less experienced employees because they're Saudi. And 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 the, the, the initial effect inevitably is going to be a loss of efficiency. But uh, it's worth it in the long term. You know, it's a, it's a situation, you know, one step back and in, in, in exchange for two steps forward. Uh, to create these jobs, to create this uh, this work experience for young Saudis and old Saudis, any kind of Saudi. Um, so it ends up being worth it in terms of a larger economy. Uh, and so I just think it's fascinating, the whole Nitikad process, as it's moved along and, and made these changes, adapted to, to businesses, gotten feedback from businesses, but stayed persistent in its goal to Saudi eyes. And as we can see, this is all turning into regulatory reform. You know, these are jobs that are now mandated. Mm-hmm. for Saudis, and they're doing this across sectors. And uh, inevitably, it will result in more jobs for Saudis and fewer uh, foreign laborers. And that's the goal. We, I don't want right. to get too far ahead, but we will be talking about that soon. But that's um, yeah. Yeah, this is very interesting. Nitikata is 10 years old now. Is that right? I think. I think that's right, 2011. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so. Um, three, Saudi budget airline Flynas is in negotiation with, the Bo- with both Boeing and its current supplier Airbus to buy aircraft worth $13 billion to $15 billion, according to a report in Reuters. The carrier has increased the number of planned new orders to 250 aircraft and also plans to increase the number of destinations from 70 to 165. This is interesting. We haven't heard much more since the announcement that Saudi Arabia would launch a second national airline as part of a broader strategy to turn the kingdom into a global logistics hub. Um, but anyway, this would be huge growth for Flynos. They currently have 20 A320neo aircraft, so this would be quite the expansion of their fleet. Um, Flynos is, of course, the, the budget low-cost carrier in Saudi Arabia, but very interesting. 
one of two. And it's always it's interesting too. But when I see somebody, this sort of immediately check to see if it's owned by the PIF uh, mm-hmm. Public Investment Fund. This is not. Finas oh. is an independent company. Um, uh, apropos to the growth, uh, it was just announced. Uh, it's interesting how quickly this happens, but just announced that this future aviation forum will be held May 9th and 11th. And the uh, Salah bin Nasser al Jassi was a minister of transport and logistics and also chairman of the board of, of uh, GACA with the uh, c- civilian airline, general authority for civilian airlines, said to what's your question, we plan, uh, he said, we plan that the Kingdom of Saudi, will, Saudi Arabia will be a global aviation hub with investments of $100 billion by the year 2030 for the establishment of a new airport in Riyadh, addition to, in addition to eight other airports tri- distributed in the regions throughout the kingdom. And this includes four airports in partnership with the private sector, that's a good thing, and the launch of a new national flag carrier to enhance the movement of air transport. While GACA's national aviation sector strategy vision aims to double the capacity and reach 330 million passengers uh, from more than 250 destinations worldwide and for air cargo to reach 4.5 million tons of goods. So anyway, in answer to your question, he just recently, the head of the uh, GACA um, said they're planning on a new national flag carrier. And the aim of that is to really compete with Qatar and Emirates and maybe Singapore Airlines as being a global brand in international air travel. I mean, because they already have Saudi Airlines, yes. and you know, so um, I think that is what is perplexing about it to me. But um, it'll be interesting. I mean, there's certainly that's a that's a crowded that's a crowded sector with. Uh, a number of the Emirates at Tihad, as you say, you know, with a big head start. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Saudi Arabia sees itself as a particular, in a particular, as a particular type, you know, larger country, and 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 anticipates maybe making Riyadh and uh, you know an international hub, as you, and it's building a brand new airport. But yeah, that's a big investment in a crowded sector. Uh, so we'll see what happens. And Richard, of course, we have nothing but good things to say about Saudi. That flight from Dulles to Riyadh is one of the smoothest flights that you can take. Um, it is comfortable. It's very comfortable. Uh, really cool that you can fly there direct. Um, so, um, <laughs> and it's a good thing since I don't drink when I fly. There's absolutely no inducement there, so that you know, it's a, that's a nice, nice, healthy flight. I do drink when I fly, so. Um, <laughs> But um, so, so, that's neither so, here nor but there. You, so you emerge from this, but you emerge from this flight fresher than you normally would. Indeed. You know when we fly Saudia. Indeed. Um, yellow number four. FDI inflows totaled nineteen point three billion dollars the most since twenty ten, according to data published by the Saudi Central Bank on Monday, according to Bloomberg. The bulk of last year's total FDI was from state oil company Saudi Aramco selling a twelve point four billion dollar stake in an oil pipelines entity to investors led by EIG Global Energy Partners, LLC. A new national investment strategy last year set an FDI target of more than $100 billion annually by 2030. Yeah, good year. I mean, even even without the, you know, the big, large chunk of it uh, was that, That, that Aramco sale, mm-hmm. uh, asset sale, but even then, it's still their best year since 2010. 
even outside that. So basically $7 billion outside that deal. You know, these big deals do count. It's 2016. Though. Yeah, their best yeah. year since 2016. Yeah. Um, yeah, progress in the right direction. That's the name of the game, really, FDI. Uh, and the Ministry of Investment said that at the second half of 2021, uh, they issued more than 3,300 new foreign investment licenses, a, a threefold increase from the same period in 2020. So they've got that $100 billion, you know, foreign direct investment goal. Uh, this was a good year for it to, to, to move it along, and it looks like you know they're getting increasing activity. Yeah, the folk, folks at uh, Misa, which is headed by Khaled Alfala, His Excellency Khaled Alfala, who used to run Ramco as Minister of Energy before this, um, they're busy. They're doing a lot of work here in the United States to drum up investment. They recently had a huge event in Riyadh. Um, obviously, just blanking right now on what it was, but is that catalyzed um, Saudi. Catalyzed Saudi. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, they're they're working hard to get this. I mean, they know how important it is. So um, they're those guys are hard at work. We know some some of their guys in Washington. So um, tell you what, we're, we're next our, our, our next guest is Amjad Ahmed, who's a, a venture capitalist and is doing some fascinating things with um, Empower Middle East, which is an Atlantic Council uh, program. Uh, lots of ex expertise, but I'll be interested in asking him about that catalyzed Saudi. So we'll learn. It's, it's, stay tuned, listeners. You'll learn more about it in our next episode. And if you hit subscribe, <laughs> it's, it'll it's just be delivered like, to wherever. Like, yeah. It does, <laughs> that sounds like these old Batman episodes, doesn't it? <laughs> stay tuned, Bat. <laughs> You'll see in the next episode. Uh, Robin and Catwoman. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> so we are so, a, we are an audio medi medium, though. You know, it's like we're kind of going back in time here in a, a little bit. <laughs> exactly. um, a lot of our growth is on YouTube, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> but so. you should be hearing this part on on a radio and over in Monos area. <laughs> um, I get I get mixed around. Is 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 number four? Am I? Is that the four hundred ninety five? So uh, number five, I guess. I think this uh, is number six, right? Did I, no, did no, I, I think one? you skipped one. Oh, man. Okay. See, Wait. the last one is the uh, five. All right, so we'll just, I'll adjust. Um, we're quick on our feet. So let me go back and do yours. Thank you. <laughs> you know, no worries. Since they're all ours, it hardly matters. No. About 499 Saudis entered the employment market in 2021, an average of 1,367 Saudis per day, according to an Okaz Saudi Gazette study of recently released government reports. The total number of male and female Saudi employees in the local labor market reached about 2.25 million in 2021, marking a just over 28% increase from 2020 when their number was about 1.7 million. I did skip this one, and it's really funny because we just talked about not skipping it in the second one. But this is this is interesting. The labor market is hot in Saudi Arabia in part because the economy is growing right now in the post-pandemic era very quickly. Um, some forecasts put GDP growth at 7.7% in 2022 um, after growing 3.3% in 2021. And this these labor figures are from the fourth quarter of 2021. So we'll see what happens here soon with um, the start of 2022. But Unemployment is down um, among nationals to 11%, the lowest since 2009. Um, it's actually 22.5% for Saudi women and 5.2% among Saudi men. So there's some some uh, making up there that they need to do. But um, good trend, though, for Saudi Arabia right now in this sector. 
Yeah, one interesting aspect of too in that fourth quarter 2021 that uh, private sector added 250,000 jobs for non-Saudis. That had been going in the opposite direction as as regulations and that sort of thing and squeezing out non uh, you know non-Saudis. Um, so that's an interesting you know obviously uh, it, you know uh, a growing economy floats all boats. So this is a good sign if if the demand for non-Saudis and Saudis is growing. Definitely. Okay. So since I just, I handed over my, my, my yellow to you, just go ahead and wrap us up here with the sixth and yeah, oh, last yellow, oh, if you would. Absolutely. So the SBA announced on Wednesday that Saudi Arabia deposited 5 billion Egypt's central bank as the Egyptian economy faces new economic pressures as a result of the war in Ukraine. On March 21, Egypt devalued its currency by around 14% after investors had pulled billions of dollars out of Egyptian treasury markets. Saudi Arabia said last October it had deposited $3 billion in Egypt's central bank and extended the term of another $2.3 billion in previous deposits. This new deposit would bring the total to $10.3 billion. Yeah, it's really cool. We're seeing the global ripples of the war in Ukraine and our increasingly globalized world. Interesting topic here. Egypt is the world's largest importer of wheat. And 85% of its wheat comes from Russia or Ukraine. So when their currency was devalued on March 21st, Egyptians saw a 25% rise in the price of popular kinds of bread and some other um, some other food staples there. Um, interesting to note, too, as well, just wanted to add on, the Egyptian and Saudi governments signed an agreement on Wednesday to support and encourage investments in Egypt by the PIF. And this was according to an Egyptian cabinet statement. Saudi and Egypt had very strong ties, so it's not surprising to see Saudi Arabia supporting Egypt um, during you know this sort of pressure, which is resulting from the situation in Ukraine. It's a nice example of uh, what Saudi Arabia is able to do. This is soft power. This is a stabilizing role in the region by backstopping a, a really significant ally at a critical time. It's the sort of thing that responsible nations do that are taking, you know, looking at their neighborhood and and, and wanting to 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 encourage stability. Uh, it's also a, a humane thing to do because a, mm -hmm. a lot of people uh, are really struggling in Egypt in terms of food prices and and uh, you know uh, ability to try and you know feed your family on on uh, on your fixed income. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's a it's a good it's a good step. It reminds me a little bit. You know, we spoke with uh, Colonel Gandhi today about the benefits of. Um, uh, Saudi military that is capable, as he put it, exporting security and stability, and that it's a it's a good thing. Um, this is just a, this is an example, you know, in a non-military way of exporting security and stability mm -hmm. uh, via financial means, and I, I think it's I think it's a good step by Saudi Arabia, strong step by Saudi Arabia. Indeed, and just a reminder, um, if you've made it this far, uh, you, you can watch all of these segments broken out on YouTube. If you want to just get to one thing or another, or you want to listen to one interview, or you want to go back and listen to an interview we had a few weeks ago, it's all there. It, it lives there forever. Unfortunately for my gaffes, <laughs> they're just on there forever. But um, this was a really great episode. Um, on behalf of both Richard and myself, Ramadan Kareem, to everybody celebrating. Um, and thank you so much for, for watching. Richard, thank you. Lucian, thank you. Ramadan Kareem to all, and uh, another good one. Thank you very much. We will be back next week. Um, really great interview coming up um, with Amjad Ahmad. So, yeah, tune in next week. Thanks again, Richard. All right. Thank you.